Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We are continuing in this wonderful Gospel as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We come to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. But I want us to read today Matthew 7, 28 into chapter 8 through verse 4. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we pause at this point of our worship of you, and we hear your words. Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, is all that we need. And when we hear his words spoken as he teaches us in his Sermon on the Mount, and even now as He teaches us through his words and actions with this leper. Dear God, I pray that you would cause us to see all that there is to see here about Christ, about who he truly is, about all that he is here to do, and how we respond. Father, I pray that you would forgive us when we are casual about Christ, and when we are casual about your word, I pray, God, this would be a day that you would use for your glory, and that you would remind us and even bring us back to an awareness and an astonishment of who Jesus is, as we see here in this text. Lord, this is your time. I pray, Lord, that you would just stir us and cause us to be in awe. This is your moment. We submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Yesterday, I took the privilege of taking a couple of hours just to get out of the house. And it was a beautiful day, beautiful blue sky. Um, I went walking at Cane Creek Park and saw all the devastation in the park from the ice. Trees down, trees actually being cut to try to clear pathways. So there's work going on. But in the midst of walking through the park yesterday, all of these trees full of ice were cracking and popping and singing. And it was just in the midst of the beauty, the beautiful chaos of this ice storm. I'm going to have to confess, I was walking in awe of God's beautiful creation. The beautiful sunshine, the beautiful white snow, even the, the small pond lake out at Cane Creek Park was, was iced over. We don't see that here. It was a gorgeous, beautiful day, but in the midst of all that, there was this loud crash and thunder of ice and limbs breaking all around as I was walking around the park. There's something about God and His creation that causes us to stop in awe from time to time. 
But what we fail to see often is a sense of awe and wonder at this. When we read the Bible, when we hear it read, when we hear God's word, is there a sense of awe? Is there a sense of wonder? And I think today's text teaches us some things that we need to pay attention to, and we ask ourselves, are we standing in awe of who Christ is? Because at a time that we live in, when genuine authority seems to be absent, when we are masters of our own fate, where everybody's truth is true, there is no central authority anymore, it seems like. We're Americans, amen? We stand up on our own two feet, and nobody can tell us what to do. We have liberty. Hallelujah. Let's think about this day and age we live in. No one can tell us what to do. We, 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 we are our own authorities. That's what it seems like. And so these final verses of chapter 7, I think, summarize well the originality of Christ and his teaching Remember in the previous three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, there is something about this teaching that Matthew wants us to see in verses 28 and through 29, that there was something unique here. At the end of this wonderful teaching, there is a response to it. The very dangerous error that I think that we can fall into when we're studying the Sermon on the Mount is to walk away with the impression that Jesus is giving us a how-to lesson on moral living. Now, it, it, there's a lot of morality here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, a lot, of, a lot of teaching on morality. But if that is all we come away with, I think we're missing what Matthew wants us to see here in verses 28 and 29. If, if this takeaway of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount is a moral lesson, these takeaways reflect the truth that one has not truly read these words. If we walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking, oh, that was a, just a good teaching, and I, I want to have to do these things in order to be saved, then I think we've missed the, the deeper truth here of what Jesus is teaching us. If we've not only read them, I think more deeply, we've not truly listened to them. If, we, if, if we've listened to these words of Jesus and walk away with, oh, that was nice, I think we've missed it because it's obvious that the lessons from the Sermon on the Mount point to something much greater. And I want to say it points to someone much greater. It's more than just us living a good Christian life. It is who we stand in awe of. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, if you flip over there, remember we we actually studied that last year, uh, last summer, Matthew chapter 5. I want to bring your attention back to a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, as Jesus is teaching that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill the law. This illuminates the difference between how Jesus taught and how the traditional academic elites of the day, the religious elites, they taught God's law in a much different manner. And Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he speaks as one who establishes his authority and perhaps he, he comes across as a stronger authority than what the Jewish culture of the day was doing. This is what was so profound. And when you read verses 17 through 20, let me do this for us. We come away with an impression that something great is happening. Here's what Jesus says. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we had a long sermon on that last a long time ago, but let's remember what Jesus is saying here. He's making a very clear um, connection that the righteousness of God is much bigger than the so-called righteousness of the academic elite, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is teaching here in a way that is much grander and much more authoritative than any man could ever teach. Here's what he says. Verse 17, remember? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's not there as a rebel. He's there to complete all that began long before this sermon. What began before creation, the Son of God was there to fulfill what the law was pointing to. So from the very beginning of this sermon, even in in, in chapter 5, verse 2, remember the Beatitudes, verses 2 and 3, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then even in verse in chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you under all kinds of evil against you falsely. On what? My account. He is establishing his authority in this sermon. He is telling people who he is by speaking the truth that only the Son of God can speak. So from the very beginning of this sermon, Jesus is establishing his authority. He's establishing his authority to teach truth from a unique perspective. And that unique perspective is his own perspective. He's not giving us license to teach truth from Scripture from our perspective at all, but he's giving a very important establishment here. I am teaching the truth from my perspective because who I am, I am the Son of God. Because if we, if we take away from this that if Jesus is establishing his authority and establishing his unique perspective on scripture, if we come away from that, then that Christ is giving us license to teach on our own perspective, I think we've missed the point because Jesus is contrasting his authority and his perspective as the son of God, the right one, against the self-proclaimed righteousness of the Pharisees who were missing it. What was, see, the Sermon on the Mount does not contain footnotes or citations or quotations from great men. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees would do. When they were teaching, they would cite great scholars. So and so said this. And so this is what this text means. Now, there are men in this room who are academics. We understand. There are, there are teachers in this room who are academics. We all understand when in academia, you better have some footnotes. Otherwise, you're wrong. I've had some grading this week myself with some papers and some things that students have turned in in my classes, and they didn't cite their quotations, and they claimed something true on their own merit. Guess what? They got points deducted for that. 
in academia, it's appropriate to cite your sources. Yet Jesus is not an academic here. He is the Son of God. Amen? So his perspective is the authority of God because Jesus himself is God incarnate. And so the perspective being taught here is the highest authority that there can be. There's no reason to cite sources. In contrast to the authority of men, because when the Sadducees and the Pharisees were teaching, when these religious elite were teaching, they were establishing their own righteousness. They were establishing their own eliteness. And they were teaching God's word from man's perspective, not from God. So remember the teaching here in Matthew chapter 5? Remember all of the you have heard it said statements in chapter 5? That's what Jesus is doing. You have heard it said, but let me correct it. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was correcting the errors in the misplaced authority of the Pharisees and returning the focus back to where it needed to be. The focus on himself as the Son of God who points to the Father. This was Jesus establishing exactly the true righteousness that we're all craving and that we're missing when we follow the teachings of men no matter how religious it sounds. So now at the end of chapter 7, Matthew's making a point when he's describing the great impact of the words of Jesus. Flip back over to Matthew 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, look at the response. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. If you, if you mark in your Bible, and I hope you do make some notes in your Bible, if you have not underlined that phrase, they were astonished at his teaching. I want to encourage you to highlight that as I have none in my Bible. Make a little asterisk or exclamation points or something. Astonished at his teaching. How many people have come through school from high school to college or whatever? How many of you ever came out of a lecture or a, a study in the classroom astonished? Jimmy, who just graduated uh, from tech in December, not one class at tech astonished you. Not one. Not one lecture. Not one assignment astonished you ever. May have brought you great anxiety, but no astonishment. Amen? Amazing. Imagine this, being taught by the Son of God, and your response is astonishment. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. That would be unique. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And in verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was something unique about this common man because he had a perception of being very common, unassuming. If you just saw him walking, maybe he was just this other man walking in the crowds. He was rough. His hands were working hands. He was probably, he was not dressed in the most elaborate robes. Just a common carpenter from Nazareth. Yet something about him as he spoke was different. There was something about his personality, his very presence. And as he spoke and he taught, the response was astonishment. The focus on authority As we see here in verse 29, he taught as one who had authority. This extends throughout chapter 8. 
And today we're going to begin to see Jesus' authority in action when we get into chapter 8 and he heals this leper. But let's dwell a bit on the idea of Jesus and his authority first. If the takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus professed wonderful ideas on the Christian life, then the point's missed here. Jesus had all authority to speak what he did, and the crowds who heard these words knew that someone special was speaking. That is a point in Matthew's gospel especially that's going to be repeated often. The authority of Christ is someone special. Today we're going to hear these words of Jesus, and we have to ask ourselves, are we merely learning how to be good Christians? Christians have been fighting this battle from the very beginning of the church. How do we be good Christians? How long does that work? It fails every time, doesn't it? Are we merely looking for ways to make God happy? Are we merely looking for ways to make our lives more prosperous and joyful? Is that the outtake of of the Sermon on the Mount, of the Jesus' words, to be prosperous and joyful, to be happy? If, if that's our takeaway, then we've missed the point. If the words of Jesus in chapters 5 through 7 do not cause us to pause and reflect on his authority as the one who speaks, then I think we've missed the point too. It's also a sign that we're not focused on God's word at all. We're just casually carrying this book around if we carry it at all, and we're not actually listening to God speak. We're not listening to the words of Jesus, and we're not responding to what we're reading or hearing read. So let's think about this for a minute. We don't want to miss the point here. After listening to the Sermon on the Mount, are we awestruck at the person who's teaching? You ever been struck by awe and wonder? It's pretty rare, I'm going to be honest with you, to be, to be struck with awe is very rare. Perhaps the last time that you were struck in awe was the time that you met your gorgeous wife for the first time before you married her. As I'm looking at my wife, she's looking at me like, where are you going with this? We have an anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks. I do remember. Amen. Maybe you were awestruck at some beautiful piece of art or a beautiful piece of music that even today, decades later, when you hear it, there's something about it that grabs you. Maybe you're awestruck, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, of God's beautiful, wonderful nature as you're experiencing the beautiful blue sky that is clean after a week worth of storms and snow and ugliness. Whatever it is, are you struck in awe? Today we hear these words of Jesus, and after listening to these sermons, this sermon here, are we awestruck at the person who's speaking? Not me. Are you awestruck at the one who's teaching here in the text, Jesus himself? Ponder that. Here's the point of Matthew 7, 28. They were astonished at his teaching. What does it mean to be astonished? It means to be struck with great wonder. And let me explain this. Wonder is the origin and the beginning of all learning and and experiencing life. 
to understand anything begins with a sense of wonder. This is why when children are children and they're acting like children and they are, they are just struck with wonder and awe, we should encourage that to teach them things. But somewhere along the line, we kill it. That's what wonder, that's what, that's what it means to be astonished, to be struck with great wonder, to be surprised. Look here at verse 28. When the crowds were astonished at his teaching, you could almost say that the crowds were surprised at his teaching. You could say that they were, it's almost like they were set outside of themselves. Wait a minute. Something has grabbed me so greatly that I am outside of myself from hearing it. That's the experience that these crowds had. Let me think about this thing about this. If the astonishment described in verse 28 is this, if this is the response of the crowd, they must have been confronted by the truth of the gospel in such a way that they were, that Matthew found it important to, to mention it. Not just here, but often in the gospel. Because think about this. Is Jesus the primary teacher here? Is he the focus of these words? Absolutely. Everything in scripture points to Christ. And even as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven, what's he also teaching about? He's teaching about himself. Because he alone is astonishing. He alone is to be revered. He alone brings salvation. The problem with the Christian walk that follows a system of doing the right thing as a Christian is that the awe of Christ's authority and the awe of his power is overlooked or ignored. The awe of what is authoritative and the awe of the powerful and that which is in control of all that is should be the center of the Christian experience, not a list of to-dos. That's what we're coming away from here in this text. The awe of Christ, the astonishment of hearing Christ speak is the center of the Christian, period. That's what changes us. That's what transforms us. That's what is the Christian life. That is the kingdom of heaven, period. Yet what do we do? We walk away from the scriptures. We walk away from worship. And I think, oh, that was nice. Oh, great. (laughs) Jesus is speaking lovely words here. He's speaking the truth here. He has poured out his very being to us in this Sermon on the Mount, and God has spoken to us through this entire book. And, oh, that's nice. Let's stop and wonder here what Jesus is saying. If salvation is through Christ alone, and since Christ alone can save, those who are saved respond in awe and wonder at the Savior. Now, does that mean that every salvation encounter, every transformation of a person's being must be emotional and dramatic? No, not necessarily. There's a lot of evidence of that in Scripture. Paul's conversion was very dramatic. I don't know about you, but if I get knocked off a horse and I'm blind for three days, that's pretty astonishing. But not every transformation of the heart is that astonishing, yet it still is a miraculous work. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis. If you've ever read any of C.S. Lewis's work and you read his testimony, it is not very dramatic. It was actually a transformation over many years of intellectual discussions and reading and thinking. And, you know, he's just that kind of a guy. He was an Oxford professor. That's what they do. God meets us where we are. But the transformation 
is still the same. It's awesome. You see where that's my hope that when we come out of this text, that we're going to come out of here with a sense of awe and wonder and hallelujahs. The power and the authority of Christ is put on full display here in verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Authority in Christ is seen that in that he is original. No one had ever taught this way before. No one had ever had this presence before. An unsuspecting, humble carpenter had this level of depth and profound glory of God in him. It was amazing. I, I would love to have been there. I'd scratch my head going, what did we just hear? Let's think about this. In contrast to the academic Pharisees, the religious elite, Jesus was this common man with an uncommon appeal. And his presence is often spoken of in the Gospels as one with authority and of one who was also of the common people. That's the uniqueness here. The Pharisees and the scribes, they surely recognized his common down-to-earth nature and his common origin. In John chapter 8, 41, we, uh, John tells us that Jesus was accused of being born out of sexual immorality by the religious elite. The folks in attendance at the synagogue in Nazareth, when Jesus comes back home to Nazareth and he teaches in the synagogue, the response of the hometown folk was different because they knew of his humble roots. Flip over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes home. I don't know about you, but uh, when, I come, when I was younger and I would come home from the military, I was in the military and I'd come home on leave, and I expected a parade when I came home. Or maybe you've gone off to college and you come back home and you expect mom just to weep all over you. Oh, I've missed you. I've missed you. Let me have your laundry. Sometimes that doesn't work. Let's think about, let's think about this here, about how Jesus was re, uh, received in Nazareth. Mark, Mark chapter 6, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. See the same? Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So there was somewhat of a reaction of astonishment, even in his hometown. But continue reading in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? So right there we see that Jesus had other siblings. Now, there's a long church history there of how that worked. We won't get into that today, but it's there. But part of the astonishment was that the hometown folks in Nazareth knew where he came from, yet he had this teaching that was astonishing. That's partly what made it so astonishing is because everyone knew who he was. Let's continue reading. Verse 4. Well, actually, verse 3, let's finish reading verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And look here. And they took offense at him. Some responded with astonishment, but some, uh, some of that astonishment was an offense. They took offense at him. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
What we see here, and we're going to see continuing, is that response to Jesus and his teaching is astonishment, but it's also, for some, rejection and offense. And I've had conversations with this from, um, from people over the years when they say, Pastor, I don't like Bible teaching. It's too offensive. And my response every single time is, it's supposed to be. The gospel by its nature is to offend the sinner in order to wake them up and illuminate their sin. If you're offended, God's doing His work. Hallelujah. You see, the problem here is that when we look at what Jesus says and does, we are either going to be astonished and in awe, or we're going to be offended and walk away. And both responses show very clearly the status of our hearts. Now, you want to know what Jesus read in the synagogue on that day that caused such offense? Turn to Isaiah 61. Here's what offended everybody. He was reading one of the great prophets. <laughs> Isaiah 61, here's what he said, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Let's just imagine Jesus saying this. Just, just put your mind in there. He's in the synagogue in his hometown, and he's reading these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And people were offended at those words. Others were astonished at those words. This prophecy here, I think, summarizes what Jesus was there to do. The authority of God the Father, the authority of heaven, was Jesus' to command and Jesus' authority to employ in His ministry. He was there to establish God's righteousness in the poor, in the oppressed, in the downtrodden. That was His job. Now, flip over to Matthew chapter 8. Let's take a look at, as Matthew continues this scene. Jesus finishing his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's coming down off the mountain, and the response of the crowds, like we said, was astonishment. Verse uh, Chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the reaction of a leper. He's coming down off the mountain and this leper was probably in the crowds there. And he heard the words of Jesus and he experienced the authority and the awe. And he comes to Jesus humbly and he lays down on the ground on his knees and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Imagine that. This first scene in Matthew's gospel following Jesus' teaching, this authority on the mountain, is one of healing of a leper. We know that leprosy was very common in the ancient world. It was a disease really that affected the nervous system and it left numbness in the skin and in the extremities. And so if you were to... Uh, 
bruise or cut your skin, the numbness there would actually teach you that it wasn't there. I mean, imagine if you touch a hot stove, are you going to know it? Imagine your, your, your nervous system dead and you burn yourself, not realizing you're burning yourself. Can you imagine the outcome of that? If you have any kind of, of damage to the skin, a bruise, a cut, and you don't feel it, what happens to that? It becomes infected, infesters. This is part of what leprosy does. The skin becomes infected and the skin would rot and develop sores. It was a, it was a skin issue. It, it would rot. That was leprosy. In Leviticus chapter 13, we see the Levitical law concerning leprosy. It was very central to the the Jewish law here. Leviticus chapter 13. Flip over there real quick. We're not going to read all of it, but if you want to write notes, chapter 13 of Leviticus explains all of the laws concerning leprosy. But in particularly, we see the role of the priest as the one who has the authority to declare a diseased person clean or unclean. Look here at chapter 13 beginning in verse 45, we're going to see that the penalties for being a leper were cruel. This was in the Mosaic Law. Leviticus chapter 13, beginning in verse 45. If you ever want to read the whole chapter, I encourage you to do so. It's 59 verses. We're not going to do that today. Look here in verse... uh, Actually, begin in verse... uh, Yeah, verse 43. Then the priest will examine him, and if the diseased swelling is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. Verse 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn cloths and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. That's just a small fragment of part of the law about leprosy. The penalties here were cruel. And the one who had leprosy of the skin, first of all, was diagnosed by the priest, you are unclean. Secondly, the priest had the authority to examine again to see if the leprosy was ever gone to say you are now clean. The leper that comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 comes to him as one with authority. Jesus had the authority and the leper recognized Jesus as the one who had authority. Notice the Mosaic law said, go to the priest. This leper comes to Jesus. He's not obeying the law, but he's responding to the truth of the gospel. He's responding to the true word of God. He's responding to what Jesus is and, and what he said. Verse 2 in Matthew chapter 8, there's humility from the leper. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice here, he does not ask to be declared clean. He would come to a priest and ask, will you declare me clean? He comes to Jesus and he asks him to make him clean. He says, Jesus, you will, you can make me clean. Not declare me clean. You can make me clean. The leper is responding with a depth of faith here. He understood exactly who Jesus was. 
The words that you speak, the authority that you are expressing here is showing me that you have the authority to make me clean. He's declaring by faith exactly who Jesus is. Look at verse 3. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And Jesus is expressing his authority here. He's expressing it with compassion. Jesus had the will. He had the desire. He wanted to make this man clean because he saw the man's faith. Jesus had the desire. This leper showed genuine faith in Christ. He says, you can make me clean. Now look here, this look here in verse four. After Jesus heals him, because it says in verse four, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He wasn't declared clean. He was clean. You notice the difference here. That's the authority of Christ. And this leper understood that he comes to Jesus by faith. Now look here in verse four, how this ends. Jesus sends the leper to the priest. Jesus could have just said, you're clean, go on about your way, ignore the priest. But Jesus, who has all authority, the authority of the Father in heaven, still says, young man, leper, go to the priest now and let him declare you clean. Look here, verse 4. And Jesus said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Why is he doing this? Jesus can fulfill the Mosaic law. That's what we read in chapter 5. He doesn't come to abolish it. He comes to fulfill it. That doesn't mean that we are under the Mosaic law to the letter of this today. That's a different... That's Paul shows us that a lot throughout the rest of the New Testament. But Jesus, as he's here, he's not here to crush the Mosaic law. He's here to fulfill it, to show people what the Mosaic law points to, and he sends the leper to the priest. Go to the priest, as the law says. Let him declare you clean. Why? As respect to the Mosaic law, because that's God's law, but perhaps also to give this man credibility to re-enter society again. I mean, there's some practical benefits here to going back to the priest. To be able to go back into the culture, to go back into his community, the priest had to give that gateway. But notice here that the leper here, we see in this text, in Matthew's gospel, this is the first practical response to the Sermon on the Mount. This leper comes to Jesus with humility and brokenness and faith. You see that? And the rest of chapter 8 is going to show us many times how Jesus and his authority is expressed and plays out and how people come to him with faith and humility. And Jesus is going to be seen here in this chapter 8 as the one who has all the authority to heal, to forgive, and to control all that there is. Now, that's awesome. As we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, here's what I'm going to ask us all to do. Because I know how it is when you come here on Sunday morning, Some of you work Saturday nights. God bless you for being here Sunday morning. We've got folks in this church who work third shift Saturday night, and they're still here Sunday morning. Hallelujah. You're tired. I get it. Others of us, we're going to walk out of here and think, oh, that was a nice sermon. Oh, that was nice music. 
and not think one thing else this week about the Word of God or about Christ Himself. Let's just be honest. We get home and life takes over. <laughs> Lunch has to be made. Kids have to be fed. Husbands have to be fed. Work starts tomorrow. School starts tomorrow. You got a lot to do. And guess what? When the busyness of the world kicks in, Jesus gets pushed to the side. Can I challenge us all here this morning with this? And I'm challenging myself too. Do we think about Jesus with awe and wonder? Are we astonished at who he is? Are we even astonished that we're forgiven people? Or are we just taking it for granted? This is not one of these reactions that we have to go out of here with an emotional hallelujah high, which I think that'd be an awesome thing, okay? Let's go out of here with a hallelujah. But let it be out of a response of awe and wonder. And Jesus loves me. He's the one who's called me to himself. He's the one who teaches with all authority. And he's the one who loves me with an authority and a love that no one else can. Amen? How does that change our perspective on the world? How does that change our perspective in our workplace and in our school? How does that change how we, our perspective on our families? Jesus is astonishing. His teaching is awesome and beyond anything else that any man could teach. Now, as I have, as you guys grant me the privilege to preach here every Sunday morning, I step into this pulpit every Sunday in fear. Not of you, but of Christ. We are here expressing His Word. When we sing praises to the Lord, we're singing praises to a wonderful Lord and Savior who deserves our sense of awe and wonder. I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of soul searching as we sing this last song. Are you singing with a genuine sense of awe? Are you hearing the Word of God with a sense of awe? Or is it, oh, hum, yeah, okay, nice. And let's... Let's be, let's be honest with ourselves. And let's, I want to ask God to really be honest with you too. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We praise you for this gift of salvation that only you can provide. God, I pray that you would cause us to be drawn to this astonishing Savior that you have given us. That you would cause us to be drawn to this awe-inspiring gospel that we are forgiven in the blood of Christ. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that everyone who hears these words would respond to your Son, Jesus Christ, with astonishment because He is appealing, He is attractive, He is loving, He is forgiving, and oh, He has is, is sacrificed so much for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless each family, each individual here as they depart, that you would love them, protect them, and guide them, but cause them to be drawn to your awe-inspiring truth this week. Go with us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you guys. Be safe.